0: Get your Bibles out. We're going to be in the Word this morning. Anybody have the old school analog version with you? There's a few. You got? That's it. Come on. There's a few under chairs. I think I stuck two up here if you want one. You can use your phone, but man, there's something beautiful about just the paper and the pages and being able to see it there because the battery, the battery never dies on this. This never needs updating. It's good to go. Um, let's go to to um, well, a couple places we can go. Let's pray and ask the Lord about it. So, Lord, we love you. We're so thankful for you. We love the beauty of your presence. We love how you fill our hearts with joy and strength, and we love your word. We want to, to be a people of your word. We want to be a people of the book. So, Lord, give us a love affair with your word again in fresh ways, Lord. Show us what you want us to know. Where do you want us to go? In Jesus' name, amen. Let's go to, uh, to 1 Kings chapter 2. 1 Kings chapter 2. While you're going there, let me say this. Um, I I made a statement last week that is true, but there's all, like any true statement, there's qualifiers or disclaimers to it. And the statement was this, that if we have presence, we have everything. And I made that statement in the context of our vision as a church, being a presence-centered church, a presence-driven church, that we are after, um, we are after a holy habitation from the Lord. We want the Lord to come and to be here, whatever we're doing, wherever we're gathered. We're more concerned with the kind of church that He wants. We're more concerned about that than the kind of church that appeals to the unchurched. And we're more concerned about that than what appeals to you and I. What kind of church is honoring to the heart of the Lord. If we have his presence, we have everything. Uh, And and that's true. That's a true, there's no but to that. There's a true statement to that. And in the days after that, the Lord sort of brought um, a, I don't want to say a warning, but a little bit of a, a a little bit of a, a, a sort of a prophetic challenge back that it's possible to have the presence and still lose it all. It's possible to have a holy habitation, to have all the presence of the Lord, but still, in the final analysis, to lose everything. And I feel like the Lord wanted us to sort of, wanted me to circle back to that this week and and just to remind me, to remind us um, that presence without a a holy commitment, without a commitment to holiness, is is, is not, it's not what God has in mind. It's not what we want. We have to marry presence with radical obedience to the the word of the Lord. We have to have those two things tied together because we can be all about chasing the presence. We can all be, you know, all of us could be flat down, knocked over by the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, we can be seeing signs and wonders. We could have just the most incredible glory encounter in this room. But if we get up and don't do what the Lord says, Really, we are, we are not where God wants us to be. We'll have lost it all. And there's a story. There's a story about a person in the, in the Word that I want us to go, I want us to look at this morning, maybe just as a way to sort of anchor us and tether us back to this commitment, not just to presence, but also to holiness. You guys with me on that? Okay. So, um, second, what'd I say? First Kings. Man, I'm not even there. Shoot. Chuck, why don't you come and help me find my Bible? First Kings, is that Old or New Testament? Where's that? Apocrypha, no. Middle Testament. It's like Middle Earth. First Kings chapter two, and, and this this year, and I want to do this the right way. But this year, I, my hope, my heart is to do a longer teaching through the story of David, because there's, I have been swimming in David's story for about the last year. It's just through some online classes that I'm doing, and just, just this getting gripped with the person of David, how he was a worshiper, a leader, a warrior, a man after God's own heart. He was not perfect, and I just, I want us to go deep into that. We're not going to today, but this is sort of in that time frame. King David is at the end of his life. And he's about to pass on the, 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 the rulership of his kingdom to his son, Solomon. Solomon, if you remember, was born to Bathsheba. You know Bathsheba. They, uh, he eventually married her, but they had some rocky beginning there in their relationship. David had other wives and concubines, but Bathsheba was likely his favorite. And, and of course, thus Solomon was his choice for who he was going to sort of pass on the throne to. And the, by the time that David is, is at the end of his life, he has created, he has, he has gathered a, a substantial kingdom in the ancient Near East. He has basically defeated all of his enemies. All of the people around him are paying tribute to him. He has united the nation of Israel, all these 12 tribes. He's united all these tribes together, and they're serving him. But now the time, the, the time of his death has come, and he is passing this on. So in Second Kings chapter 2, Beginning in verse 1, these are some of the last words that he's going to say as he, as, he, as, he, as, he, as he goes on. When the time drew near for David to die, he gave a charge to Solomon, his son. My father passed away in July. We didn't have a chance to have a conversation, but I always wonder what would his charge to me be? What would his last words to me be? But of course, my dad lived a life where every, you know, every season he was instilling in me these kind of things, so I'm not too stressed about it. But David had the chance to speak to Solomon. He says this, I'm about to go the way of all the earth, he said. So be strong, act like a man. It's awesome. Act like a man, Solomon, and observe what the Lord your God requires. Walk in obedience to him, and keep his decrees and commands, his laws and regulations, as written in the law of Moses. So it's interesting that David... So the very first thing that he says is not, don't screw up my kingdom. Don't lose money. Don't let this enemy come in. Don't let that enemy come in. He doesn't say anything at all about his own kingdom. The very first thing that he says is Solomon, act like a man, follow God's law. Whatever you do, follow God's law. And here's what he says. So that, do this, so that, it's a cause and effect, so that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you go, that the Lord may keep his promise that he made to me. So it's a cause and effect. Solomon, listen: if you want to prosper in everything that you that you're going to do, obey the Lord, do what He says to do. And he sees the cause and effect. He says that a man can only be successful in as much as he is following the leading of the Lord. I still believe that that's true. We can only be as successful as when we are following in obedience to the Holy Spirit. So this introduces us then to the, the reign of Solomon, the reign of Solomon, and there's a couple things that we know about him. Um, he, he, he kind of, chapter two, his, his throne is established. Go to the end of chapter two. Um, The very final words of chapter 2 of 1 Kings say this, the kingdom was now established in Solomon's hands. So he had a little bit of house cleaning to do. He had a few people he had to kill to get out of the way. It's kind of weird and gross, but hey, that was the ancient Near East. We're not going to judge right now. The kingdom was now established in Solomon's hands. I want you to pay attention to what the very next thing happens in Solomon's story is. Chapter 3, verse 1, Solomon made an alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and married his daughter. Y'all say, boo. boo, it's bad news. We'll get to that in a minute. But there's three things that Solomon has that's, that makes him, that sets him apart. The first thing that he has is extraordinary wealth. Flip over to chapter four, and we're going to be all over chapter two, three, four, up to 10. So bear with me here. Flip over to chapter four. It's going to, we're going to unpack some of the things that, that, that Solomon has in verse 20. This is his daily provisions. The people of Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They ate, they drank, and they were happy. It's good life right there. And Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates River to the land of the Philistines. So that's, that's from the, the, the eastern side all the way to the west, the entire area of that Middle East, near, near Iran, Persia, all the way over to, um, to, to the Mediterranean Sea. As far as the borders of Egypt, these countries brought tribute and were Solomon's subjects all his life. His daily provisions, these are things coming into him as tribute. Every day, these show up. 30 cores of the finest flour, that's about five and a half tons of flour, and 60 cores of meal, 10 head of stall-fed cattle, 20 of pasture-fed cattle, and 100 sheep and goats, as well as deer, gazelles, roebucks, and choice fowl. So every day, these would show up to him. This is like his, um, these, are, these, are, these are the returns on his investment, so to speak. Those of you that have investment accounts, you know, if you have stocks and bonds, you get interest that comes in and every day. Hey, I get $5 in interest. This is, his, this is his money that's just building up. He ruled over the kingdoms, west of the Euphrates, Um, He had 4,000 stalls for chariot horses and 12,000 horses. Bible says this later on. His annual gold income was four and a half tons of gold every year. From mining, from trading, from other sources. Four and a half tons, about $125 million a year in gold. It says later on that everything in his palace, everything in his palace was gold. The walls were lined with gold. The cups were gold. The toilet was gold. The silverware was gold. In fact, there was no silver. The Bible says this, nothing was silver because it was too ordinary. Y'all, that's, that's bougie to use the term that my daughter uses. That's like incredibly wealthy. Everything is Gold. He had a fleet of ships every three years that would return to harbor filled with gold and ivory and exotic animals. He had so much money. He's like, what do I spend it on? I know. I want to send some ships out to the far continents to bring back whatever kind of cool stuff that they can find. I want to create a zoo over here and a museum over here and gardens and libraries and just wealth upon wealth upon wealth. He had such extraordinary wealth. That's the one thing that he had. What would that be like? Who's the richest man in the world right now? Jeff? Is it is it Jeff Bezos? I think wasn't his isn't his net worth like I don't know is it like four hundred billion dollars or something just mind boggling? some is it more than that, Aaron? Was it like six hundred billion dollars? At some point you just stop counting. Like why bother? What's what's another hundred billion dollars? And 204.6 billion dollars. And just like, this is the leader of God's people on earth. And he's renowned around the world for his wealth. That's the first thing that he has. Second thing that he has, according to the word, is he has supernatural wisdom this is kind of the weird thing, is that the Lord has such grace for Solomon, even though Solomon makes some really bad decisions. So, even as I'm reading this yesterday, I'm trying not to judge the man, you know, but like, okay. But one of the things, it says this in chapter 3, um, Well, let me read this to you. This, this gives a little bit of the, of, the, of the paradox of Solomon's life. Chapter three, verse three. Solomon showed his love for the Lord by walking according to the instructions given him by his father, David. Except that he offered sacrifices and burned incense on the high places. So Solomon had some good he had some good some good days. He had some good seasons in his life where he was walking according to what his father had said, but there are also moments where he just was not getting it. Anyway, verse, uh, verse four, the king went to Gibeon to offer sacrifices. This is before uh, Jerusalem and the temple were established. So Gibeon it, it says this, where that was the most important high place. So Solomon is going to offer sacrifices to Yahweh. He's not sacrificing right now to any kind of pagan God. He's offering to the Lord. He's going to this high place at Gibeon. And it says that he offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. I mean, how long would that take? I mean, seriously, you got people, you got people to do it for you. Could you do, could you do 20 a day? I mean, that would still take months and months and months. But there's something in his heart that just is at least making an effort to try the Lord at Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon during the night in a dream, and God said, Ask for whatever you want me to give you. It's like the movie Aladdin. You know, my kids love that. Like, okay, rub the lamp, and out comes the genie, and the genie gets three wishes. God shows up and says, You get a wish? Can't ask for more wishes. Maybe not. Ask for whatever you want me to give you. Solomon answered, what, By the way, what would you say if the Lord showed up to you in a dream? And said, Give me whatever you Ever ever ask yourself that? What would I do if the Lord said that? What would you you say to the Lord if if He showed up in a dream and said, Whatever you want, I'll give it to you? Being on the day, I may say, You know what? I want some financial stability for my family, or I want a bigger house, or I want some peace and quiet. I want a successful ministry. I want health for me and my wife for the rest of our years. I want to be free of X, Y, Z, whatever it is, fill in the blank. God shows up and says, what do you want? Ask and I will give it to you. And it's clear that God is after Solomon's heart in the same way that God was after David's heart. Because God's going to show up to Solomon two different times with epiphanies, he's going to reveal himself to him two different times. God, God's not pulled away. God had a special love for David. David and the Lord were just like knit together heart to heart, and God wants the same thing with Solomon. He's going to show up to Solomon and say, Solomon, look, I want to be faithful to you just like I was faithful to your father. What, what do you want, Solomon? I'm going to bless you because, I, because of your father. I want to bless you. Whatever you want, ask and I'll give it to you. So Solomon has a pretty good answer, You've shown great kindness to your servant, my father David, because he was faithful to you and righteous. You've continued this great kindness in him and given him a son to sit on the throne. So he's sort of, he's, he's honoring God. Um, and he says, now, Lord, my God, you've made your servant king in place of my father David, but I am only a little child and do not know how to carry out my duties. So he's speaking out of this place of humility, He looks around like, I'm not sure I'm up for this you know it's it, it just imagine if you kind of woke up and 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 all of a sudden you're seated in in, in the oval office you know weird kind of time frame twist, and all of a sudden you are now sitting in the old lobby. You're the president of the United States of America, and you've got the phones ringing. You've got people knocking on the door. You know, Madam President, you've got a meeting at 10 o'clock, another one at 10 30, and the Joint Chiefs want to meet you at 12, and this committee wants to meet you at one o'clock, and you've got this, you know, address to the state tonight at seven o'clock. Imagine waking up in that kind of situation. You're like, I have no idea what I'm doing. I don't know how to lead my father built this great thing. I don't know. I don't know if I can do this. So honestly, it's from a a good place. He recognizes this. He says, your servant, your servant is here among the people you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to count or number. So give your servant a discerning heart. That literally means a listening heart. We say wisdom. That's what he's asking for. Give me, God, give me, we pray for that all the time. God, give us wisdom to know. I pray that almost every day. God, give me wisdom to know what to do. This is what Solomon asking for, because his eyes are on the situation around him, and I want to understand how to lead the situation. Is that a bad prayer? Say, no, it's not a bad prayer. That's good to ask for that. Give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern this great people? It says the Lord was pleased that that, that Solomon asked for that. God says, you know what? That's a good answer. Not only am I going to give you that, I want to give you all the other stuff that you really were tempted to ask for, but it didn't. I want to give you great wealth as well. You're getting the whole package. It's like the game shows where, you know, if you open up the right door, all of a sudden you get what's behind all three doors. Maybe that's not really on a game show. Maybe I just made that up. I don't know. It seems like it would be, you know, you, you pick the right answer, you get the whole enchilada. So uh, and God says, I will do what you have asked. I'll give you a wise and discerning heart so that there will never, so there will never been anyone like you, nor will there ever be. Moreover, I will give you what you've not asked for, both wealth and honor. So then your lifetime, you'll have no equal among kings. Verse 14 if you walk in obedience to me and keep my decrees and commands as David your father did, I will give you a long life. And so supernatural wisdom is given to him. Wisdom in the in the Old Testament also is not intellectual. It's not more knowledge. Wisdom is always, um, it's a it's a proper response to things. If you have wisdom, you don't have head knowledge of, you know, facts. You have an understanding of what the right response in a situation is. And that's what Solomon asked for. I want a right response to God's authority. It's a matter of the will. So that's the second thing that it gives him. Third thing is this. By the way, I'd take those any day. Wealth and wisdom. and wisdom. Mm-hmm. Not bad not bad at all. Come on. Flip to chapter 5. He also has a temple for worship. Chapter 5, verse 1. When Hiram, king of Tyre, heard that Solomon had been anointed king to succeed his father David, he sent his envoys to Solomon because he had always been on friendly terms with David, Solomon sent this message to Hiram, saying, you know that because of the wars waged against my father David from all sides, he could not build the temple for the name of the Lord his God until the Lord put his enemies under his feet. But now the Lord my God has given me rest on every side, and there is no adversary or disaster." Verse 5, I intend, therefore, to build a temple for the name of the Lord my God. In chapter 5, 6, 7, and 8, four chapters describe the building of Solomon's temple, which would become one of the most well-known, seminal places in the history of Israel. If you were to go to northwest Arkansas and land maybe in Fayetteville and drive south on the interstate, you'll get to a little town called Mountainburg. Doesn't that just sound homey? My grandfather in the 60s answered a call to, um, to the ministry. He had been a sheep farmer in Oklahoma, and the Lord got a hold of him and said, I want you to be a pastor, I want you to be a preacher. So he took all 10 kids, I think eight were still at the house at the time, including my father, packed up everything and headed for the mountains of the Ozark Mountains of Northwest Arkansas, got to Mountainburg. No, that's too, that's too urban. We got to go deeper in the mountains. We're going into Mulberry, not Mayberry, Mulberry. (laughs) Problem is Mulberry is a little bit too urban. We got to go deeper into a little place that's not even on the map called Turner Community. Dirt road for about five miles. And if you were to drive there now, the road is now paved, fortunately. But there on one of those roads, you'll find a small building called Ozark View Chapel. It may be 20 by 40. It might seat 60 people packed. Made out of the... the, the, old volcanic rock that litters the countryside of Arkansas made of rough cut pine painted sort of an olive drab green on the outside but he built it him and his sons built it my dad designed it drew it out and they built it from scratch and still standing to this day still has a congregation to this day So Solomon gets to build the house of the Lord. This is about 480 years after coming from Egypt. Chapter 4, 5. Chapter 6 says he begins to build it. 13 years later, or 7 years later, he completes the building of the temple, and it's It's eye-popping. It's staggering in its scope and in its beauty. It's something that that part of the world has never seen before. And then he builds his palace. But I want you to, I want to go here to chapter 8, when they bring the ark. Now, remember, this is not just about the building. This is about the dwelling place of God. Up until this point, they've had the ark, and the ark has sort of gone around from place to place, but they want, and David has longed for, a house of God, a place where the ark can dwell in safety, where the Levites and the priests can come in and minister, where sacrifices can be made. David wasn't able to do it. Solomon now builds this incredible structure that's just astonishing. They're going to bring the ark in, in chapter 8. Let me read this to you here. Um, Chapter 8, verse 1. Then Solomon summoned into his presence at Jerusalem the elders of Israel, all the heads of the tribes and chiefs of the Israelite families to bring up the Ark of the Covenant from Zion, the city of David. All the Israelites came together to King Solomon at the time of the festival. Verse three: When all the elders of Israel had arrived, the priests took up the ark, and they brought up the ark of the Lord and the tent of meeting and all the sacred furnishings in it. The priests and the Levites carried them up, and King Solomon and the entire assembly of Israel had gathered about him, were before the ark sacrificing. Listen to this: so many sheep and cattle that they could not be recorded or counted. Then they bring up the ark itself. There was nothing in the ark, says verse nine, except the two stone tablets that Moses had placed. And at verse 10, listen to this. When the priest withdrew from the holy place, so they go in, they place the ark, they're carrying it on these poles because no one can touch it. This is the holy presence of the Lord. They carry it on these poles. They go through the curtain from the holy place into the most holy place. They set this ark down. The Bible says when they withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord. They come back. And the manifestation of God's Spirit, the manifestation of His glory literally comes in and fills the place. And the priests, listen to this, could not perform their service because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled this temple. Y'all, I want this to be a prophetic word over King's Church. What would it be like if the presence of God was so rich here that we just almost couldn't function? Like, you know what? I, I can't even do the slides anymore. I'm sorry. I can't. I, the glory of God is so big here. And Jim's like, I can't even play keys anymore. You know, and Jamie's like, I can't even, I can't even play guitar anymore because the presence of the Lord is so heavy. I want that to be a prophetic word over us. But this is happening here where the glory is so thick and so heavy that the priests just stand back and say, we don't even know what to do. And they've been dreaming about this time for so long. And Solomon's been dreaming about this sign for so long. And Solomon said, the Lord has said that he would dwell in a dark cloud. I have indeed built a magnificent temple for you, a place for you to dwell forever. And he, he gives this blessing to the Lord. He gives this beautiful prayer of consecration. Flip on to verse 22. He offers this great prayer of dedication that goes on for page after page after page. He blesses all of Israel. It's just the most amazing thing. Go to verse 62. Then the king and all of Israel with him offered sacrifices before the Lord. Solomon offered a sacrifice of fellowship offerings to the Lord 22,000 cattle. Y'all say, what? 22,000 cattle sacrificed on this one day. 120,000 sheep and goats. So the king and all the Israelites dedicated the temple of the Lord. This is a huge turning point in their history. David is just, David's not even alive, but he could just only imagine. He's been dreaming of this day all of his life from the time that he was, you know, just ministering before the Lord. He just began to dream of the glory of God filling his his dwelling place and throngs and thousands among thousands of people all worshiping. This was David's dream all of his life. And David is, or Solomon is now here to see this thing being, being, being released. Goes on to offer more. The king consecrated the middle part of the courtyard, offering more sacrifices, grain offerings, fellowship offerings. Um, so Solomon observed the festival at that time and all Israel with him. A vast assembly, people from Labo Hamath to the wadi of Egypt. So even, foreign, even people from all over on the far reaches of the kingdom, you couldn't even see an end to the people. They celebrated before the Lord our God for seven days and seven days more, 14-day celebration. Man, I get tired of, I get, I get tired after two hours of, of family feast. I'm ready to go home and take a nap. 14 days. On the following day, he sent the people away. They blessed the king and the king went home joyful and glad in heart for all the good things the Lord had done for his servant David and the people. This is like the high point of high points. You know, like this is what we were made for. We're made for the presence of God. We're made for the glory of God to come in and to be here. We're made for blessing upon blessing. We're made for worship to rise up. We're made to offer our sacrifices of worship and praise. And so after this, God shows up a second time to Solomon. Chapter 9. This is the when all the party is over. The Lord appeared to him a second time, and the Lord said to him, "Salmon, I've heard the prayer and the plea you've made before me. I heard it, and I've consecrated this temple which you've built by putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will always be there. As for you, if if you walk before me faithfully with integrity of heart and uprightness, as David your father did, and do all that I command and observe my decrees and laws, I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever, as I promised David your father when I said you will never fail to have a successor on the throne of Israel. Same promise I made to your dad, Son, listen to me. To keep my commandment, walk in covenant, walk hand in hand with me, do this, this kingdom is going to be unshakable. But, but if you turn away from me, turn away, don't observe the commandments and decrees, go off to serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land I've given them. I will reject this temple I've consecrated. Verse 8, this temple will become a heap of rubble. I mean, it's brand spanking new, they've not even taken off the little plastic film You know, the plastic film that comes onto a plate? Haven't even pulled that off yet. Paint's not even dry. And God is already saying, listen to me, Solomon. I want to bless you, but there's a condition. If you walk away from me, this is coming down. And you are going out. So there's a promise and a warning And I believe that the the Lord is saying the same thing to the church today. A promise of His presence. He wants to give presence, just like we asked for last week. He wants to give supernatural encounters. He does. He wants to show up in signs and wonders and power and glory. The Lord is all saying, but there's a condition to that. You must walk in holiness before me. And something, though, begins to happen in Solomon's life. And I read to you some of the beginnings of it, of that choice that he made early on by making an alliance with Pharaoh by marrying his daughter. If you ever go to Italy, anybody been to Italy? Have you you seen the Tower of Pisa? The leaning Tower of Pisa. It's like this old tower, I don't know, it's 700 years old, and it's like leans this way. And now it's kind of a cool thing, you know, now it's like, ooh, the Tower of Pisa. But honestly, Probably before it was cool, it was like a real pain. It's like, well, what are we going to do with a leaning tower? Can't do anything with it. Can't store anything in it. Can't climb up on the top of it because it'll fall over. And they begin to realize that, well, the tower itself is was, was pretty good, but the soil underneath was being eroded away. It was not really, it's not a solid foundation there. I think the same thing begins to happen if we're not careful in our lives. Is we, we, there, a spiritual erosion just kind of begins to wear away this foundation that we thought was there. You know, I remember I made the comment earlier in the service about a, this particular leader, person of influence in, in, my, in, in the town that I live in that's just gone off the deep end. I'm like, that wasn't the case before. You know, I, I, I know you. I, I had conversations with you. There was a strong spiritual foundation that was there. What has happened? What's eroded that away? What's taken that away? Similar thing begins to happen in Solomon's life Let me read this. Remember, God God says that do all that he's commanded and observed. Deuteronomy 17, I don't think it's up here. You don't have to read it, but I'll I'll read it to you. Deuteronomy 17, this this is a pep talk to God's people as they are about, this is about 400 years before Solomon. They're about to go into the promised land. They're about to take conquest of it and God's going to give them some warnings. They're about to move into their promise. God's going to give them some warnings. Just like he gave some, he said, I'm going to bless you, but you got to be warned. There's some conditions. He says this, when you entered the land, the Lord your God is giving you and have taken possession of it and settled in it. This is Moses speaking to the people, God speaking through Moses. And you say, let us set a king over us like all the nations around us, Moses says, be sure to appoint over you the king, the Lord your God chooses. He must be from among your own brothers. Do not place a foreigner over you, one who is not a brother Israelite. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. Interesting. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. Which way? Egypt. Don't go back to Egypt Don't go back for the horses or the chariots. Certainly don't go back for the women. He must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver or gold. How in the world did he miss this? Same way, you and I miss many things in God's word. We get, we get comfortable, we get complacent, we kind of forget. Oh yeah, God said, don't do this, but now I'm kind of used to this and I don't want to not do this anymore. But there was a warning given 400 years ago, don't go this way, it's only trouble. And now Solomon finds himself in this exact same place he shouldn't be in. And I wonder if one day, I don't know this, I wonder if one day he wakes up from his solid gold bed, his thousand count Egyptian cotton sheets, (laughs) laying next to that smoking hot Egyptian wife from royalty. I wonder if he thinks back and he remembers anything from Deuteronomy 17. Good chance that he did. He would have known the law. His father would have made sure of that. And at some point along the way, he has to make a decision. Am I going this way, the way of my own ambition, the way of my own comfort, or am I going to go this way, the way of radical obedience to the Lord, though it cost me everything? And I think something inside of his heart said, you know, God has blessed me so much, and look where I am. Surely, I can't be in the wrong. And so, weeks become months, months become years, and slowly his heart begins to erode. That foundation in his heart begins to erode away. Verse 23 of chapter 10, King Solomon was greater in riches and wisdom than all the other kings of the earth. The whole world sought audience with Solomon to hear the wisdom God had put in his heart. Year after year, everyone who came brought a gift. Articles of silver and gold, robes, weapons, spices, horses, and mules. Solomon accumulated chariots, horses, on and on and on he goes. I'm not even going to read it all. Chapter 11. These are the most heartbreaking six verses that I think I've read in a long time. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign people women, besides Pharaoh's daughter. Man, he loved women. Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites, they were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. God, don't take away my women. Oh, they're so good. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines. Man, when he goes in, he goes all in. Jeez. It's almost like Sol- make a joke. Solomon's like, Lord, you said not to take a foreign wife. I didn't. I took 700. Man. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods. And his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God. So, if Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord, he did not follow the Lord completely. And Solomon's, the tragedy is that the Lord had given him a supernatural listening heart. That's what wisdom means. A discerning heart. The Lord had given him a supernatural listening heart. How in the world does a listening heart become a divided heart? What in the world is happening? Let me read a couple things to you. One, This is a quote. By D.A. Carson, theologian, writer, scholar from 20 years ago or so. He says this People, this is so true, people do not drift towards holiness. Apart from grace driven effort, people do not gravitate towards godliness, prayer, obedience to scripture, faith, delight in the Lord. We drift toward compromise and call it tolerance. We drift toward disobedience and call it freedom. We drift toward superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch towards prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we've escaped legalism. We slide toward godlessness and convince ourselves we have been liberated. 1930s, there's a man named Charles Templeton. He was an evangelist, a pretty well-known evangelist at the time began reaching out to people, ministering to people in Canada. He was a close friend of Billy Graham. They were ministering kind of side by side in this time. Yet unlike Billy Graham, Templeton, soon into his ministry, walked away from what he once believed. No longer professed the faith, he deconstructed. Wrote a book in 1995 called Farewell to God, My Reasons for Rejecting the Christian Faith. What's unique about Templeton, though, is not that he walked away. Many people do that. What's interesting is that there still remained in his heart a deep love and tenderness for Jesus. And he was interviewed by Lee Strobel. If you remember Lee Strobel, he was a famous journalist with the Chicago Tribune. He found the Lord. He wrote a book called The Case for Christ. Strobel interviews Templeton soon after this, asking about his love. Templeton says this, or ask him about Jesus. Tell me about Jesus. Who was Jesus? And Templeton says this, he was the greatest human being who ever lived, an intrinsically wisest person I've encountered, the least duplicity, the greatest compassion of any human being in history, the most important person ever born. Everything decent I know, I learned from him. There have been many wonderful people, but Jesus is Jesus. And in saying that, says Strobel, Templeton's eyes began to water up a little bit. His voice began to crack. And he said, you know, I kind of miss him. Something about my Jesus. I wonder if Solomon had the same experience at the end of his life. I think he did, and here's why I say that. Last place we're going, Ecclesiastes chapter 2. The words of the teacher. Who's the teacher? Solomon. An old man writes these words out at the end of his life. Everything that he's learned, he writes down. You would think that we would find strategies for accumulating wealth or managing kingdoms managing households of wives. Verse 12, I, the teacher, was king over Israel and Jerusalem. I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. What a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. I've seen things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless. Really? Hebrew word is havel. It means empty, nothing. Chapter 2 says something similar. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all of my labor, and this was the reward for all of my toil. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve... Everything was Havel. Everything was meaningless. Chasing after the wind, nothing was gained under the sun. And those are the final words of a man who had it all and lost it all. You see, a divided heart leads to a Havel kind of life. I'm convinced of that a divided heart only leads to emptiness, only leads to meaninglessness. We can have presence. Solomon had it. He had God showing up to him. He had the most incredible worship experience the world has ever known pre-Pentecost. He had his father speaking to him about the love of God. Solomon had everything, but a divided heart erodes the foundation of that away until all of it is gone. Church, we cannot have presence without a consecration and a commitment to the holiness of God. We cannot have one without the other. Do not give me one without the other. I've had one without the other. I've had holiness and legalism without presence. I don't want it either. That's sad. That's a heavy burden to bear. I don't want that but I don't want freedom and presence and, 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 and liberty untethered from who God is in His holy character. Amen? You with me on that? Let's make that commitment. Come on. Wouldn't it be great, though, if our song would not be Ecclesiastes? It would not be everything is meaningless, but it would be, you know we've had it all. We've had wealth. We've had pleasure. We've had wisdom. We've had poverty. We've had suffering. We've had it all. But we've had the presence of Jesus, and everything is beautiful and full of life and hope and joy. I think that's the reality that God wants to give us. I believe that.